morning. My name is Olivia. My name is Danny, and we're your co-hosts. And today we are going to be doing a fun little deep dive on one of the best songs off of Evermore, Champagne Problems. And before we get too far into it, we just want to make a quick note that Olivia's microphone chose an excellent (laughs) day to die. So may she rest in peace. Uh, but if Olivia's a little less clear than normal, that would be why, because her microphone said, uh, nope, you're about to have a champagne problem. Yeah, quite literally. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot to go through when it comes to this song. So we're going to do this in essentially three parts. We're going to talk about some of the background behind the song and how we got to where we're at with it. We're going to do our lyric analysis per usual, and then we're going to end with some critical reception. We're really excited about this one because I've always really liked Champagne Problems, but I didn't like it as much as I do now until the deep dive. I know. I feel like a lot of it went completely over my head when I was just (laughs) listening to enjoy the song, like most of Taylor's songs, but this one especially. For those who aren't as familiar with her discography, Folklore and Evermore are two sister albums that she released in 2020 after COVID happened or during the quarantine, I guess, more technically. These songs differ from all of her other stuff in that they are extremely, extremely poetic. It's clear that she was definitely playing with her lyricism more so than her musical ability. Mm -hmm. She also spent a lot of time with storytelling of perspectives that she didn't necessarily completely relate to, which Mm -hmm. is one of the things that makes the word folklore so incredibly apropos. Champagne Problems is the second song off of the album Evermore, which was released on December 11th, 2020. We're coming up on Evermore season, baby. Yes, we are. The forgotten album. (laughs) 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 R.I.P. R.I.P. Taylor always forgets to mention her baby Evermore. It's like folklore, happy birthday, folklore, love you. And then there's Evermore. Yep. She even remembers Lover. Champagne Problems is one of the songs on the album that she wrote with Joe Alwyn, her boyfriend, who at this point she's been with for over six years, and he wrote under the pseudonym William Bowery. And it was produced with Aaron Dessner from The National, and he is like an all-up-in-your-feels type producer. And she and Joe have this habit of writing these like sad, slow songs together, especially after Sweet Nothing on Midnight's. All that you ever wanted from me was sweet nothing. Yeah, this song is just so gorgeous. And it's such an interesting storytelling opportunity for Taylor and honestly for Joe too. the overall like arching story is about uh, the idea without doing a deep dive is that the song is about a girl who says no to a proposal because of her own mental health struggles. But Olivia spent hours and hours analyzing (laughs) each line and figuring out that each line has like a triple meaning. Yeah, it's overwhelming. Going off of her and Joe like to write sad songs together. Taylor said specifically of writing Champagne Problems, quote, Joe and I really love sad songs. We've always bonded over music. We write the saddest songs together. We just really love sad songs. What can I say? He started that one and came up with the melodic structure of it, meaning Champagne Problems. And I say that it was a surprise that we started writing together, but in a way it wasn't because we always bonded over music and had the same musical taste. He's always the person showing me songs and they become my favorite songs. Champagne Problems was one of my favorite bridges to write. I really love a bridge where you tell the full story and you shift gears in the bridge. I'm so excited to one day be in front of a crowd when they all sing. She would have made such a lovely bride. What a shame she's fucked in the head. 
So that might be telling us that that song's going to show up on the Eras tour. Yeah, it better. That would be so fun. It would be. <laughs> I want to shout what a shame she's fucked in the head as loud as I can <laughs> with a room of 70,000 people. And one last thing for context before we hop into the lyrics. In Taylor's post about Evermore, the day that she released the album, she describes Champagne Problems as the song where longtime college sweethearts had very different plans for the same night, one to end it and one who brought a ring. So for context, these are college sweethearts. So devastating. Okay, okay. Well, both of us got with our men after college, so I guess I don't have any like weird ick feeling listening to it. All right, so verse one, you booked the night train for a reason so you could sit there in this hurt. Bustling crowds or silent sleepers, you're not sure which is worse. So we immediately open with some sad imagery here. The narrator is describing someone who has recently been hurt. And we know because of context that this is a heartbroken person. And they seem to be isolating themselves here. And the isolation also doesn't seem to be really helping as evidenced by the comparison of crowds versus silent sleepers. So for those who don't know or aren't familiar, a sleeper is a private room on a train. This person is riding a train in a silent sleeper. It seems like they've escaped the bustling crowds to have this moment alone. When I'm heard about something, I don't like to be around people and desperately want to be alone. But when you are alone, when you're hurt, you find that being alone doesn't solve it. It almost feels worse Uh, so it's just an interesting comparison of bustling crowds versus silent sleepers people talk about being alone when they're in pain a lot because that's how most people i feel process pain sometimes it's good to be in a loud bustling crowd and have it drowned out and it makes like your problems feel so much smaller but it's a really beautiful opening that paints like you said in some incredible imagery she sings about trains on cardigan she mentions trains in red too she describes like waiting for a train and like her intro to red or something like that oh does she so she just has a fascination with like using trains as a metaphor for relationships (laughs) she also talks about hating crowds in the song betty from folklore i hate crowds you know that And she doesn't like silence, which she calls back to ours from Speak Now. Stranger silence makes me want to take the stairs. Stranger silence makes me want to take the stairs. Yeah. (laughs) So lots of layers here. And I mean, I know that some of those are reaches, but I find it interesting that she uses these like strings that tie all of her songs together because she has these themes that she's a big fan of. Yeah, I feel like, We've talked about this in our Easter egg episode. So if you haven't listened to that one, go listen to it. We talk about how sometimes her Easter eggs have deep meanings, where she's actually drawing parallels between different songs for a reason, because those songs are related. A lot of the times I feel like her Easter eggs and parallels don't have to have a deep meaning other than she's just for funsies connecting her songs. Mm Mm-hmm. We all have like certain phrases and statements that we catch ourselves saying often. Like recently, I've said it on the podcast like five times. It feels like the word apropos has like recently re-entered my vocab. (laughs) And I said it earlier in this episode, it won't stop. 
she does that too, just with her songs. And it's decades long of these scenes that she likes to tie back. So I know some of them are reaches, but I think that they're fun. And they're all ones that have been pointed out on the internet by the eagle-eared listeners. So do eagles have good listening? (laughs) I know it's eagle-eyed, but whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, Are we ready for the chorus? Because I dropped your hand while dancing, left you out there standing, crestfallen on the landing, champagne problems. Man, so now we're really getting into why this person's heartbroken. So we learn here that the first person, I, the narrator, is the one that turned down the proposal. You is the person proposing. Just a little disclaimer going forward. I will likely refer to the narrator as she and the subject as he, because that is just what my brain pictures because of my personal life experiences. It's important to note that there aren't any gendered pronouns really telling you that the one proposing is a he and the one who turned down is a she. So picture it however your brain pictures it, just for flow's sake, just getting that out there. I see the proposer as a he. Good note. Anywho. So jumping into the actual lyrics and breaking them down a little bit, I dropped your hand while dancing, I think is such a poetic way of saying, I just broke up with you. Of course, Taylor's very poetic and everything she says mostly is extremely poetic besides certain songs. Yeah, I don't think she literally meant like they were in the middle of dancing and she went, peace. Like, I, I agree. I think it's a metaphor. I think the idea of dancing here is a metaphor for their relationship in general and dropping his hand is the metaphor for her actually breaking up with him. And an interesting parallel with that line that I don't really think has a true meaning. I don't think there's real reasoning behind it, but in the all too well short film, Sadie Sink yells, you dropped my fucking hand, which I just think is fun. You dropped my fucking hand. What am I supposed to do with that? But moving on, the left you out there standing, crestfallen on the landing. Crestfallen is an adjective meaning sad, disappointed, feeling shame or humiliation, dejected, defeated. It's a really, really beautiful way of describing that feeling. She broke up with him and just left him there feeling crestfallen. Like she didn't offer any comfort. Yeah. And so something else that's interesting here, and I didn't tie this together at all. I saw this online is that mm-hmm. this song feels like a, the antithesis to lover. Ladies and gentlemen, will you please stand with every guitar string scar on my hand? From lover, the song lover, because lover is written as a wedding speech in the ladies and gentlemen, will you please stand with every guitar string scar on my hand, yada, yada. And this is like the complete opposite of being like, uh, no, anti-wedding, ending it all, don't want this. And again, it's there's not really a correlation there, but wedding themes think like paper rings. It's also the antithesis of paper rings. We can assume based on the phrase champagne problems, which we'll unpack here in a second as we get to that lyric, that this is not some broke, poor relationship where they're struggling to get by. This isn't a paper rings relationship of I'd marry you with paper rings. I feel like this song in particular, there are so many ways to interpret what has gone on between these two characters, what their relationship is like. And I feel like that's the fun of the folklore and Evermore songs is there's no right or wrong answer. It's all really up to interpretation. 
And so I'm excited to kind of unpack how you and I both have interpreted the song. Speaking of the dropping hand while dancing, a few other just ties to past songs. My favorite Taylor Swift song of all time, New Romantics. Please take my hand and please take me dancing. Please leave me stranded. It's so romantic. And oh, I just got goosies as well as I know places also from 1989. Just grab my hand and don't ever drop it, my love. And someone else on the internet said that it tied to dancing with our hands tied, which I think is about bondage. So I'm not going to draw that. <laughs> but we were dancing. Dancing with our hands tied, hands tied. Yeah, we were dancing. I mean, it's the symbolism of dancing yeah. and how that represents to Taylor like a relationship like you can even, you know, reference last kiss. Like I wasn't much for dancing, but for you, I did like much for dancing before you, I did because I love you. It wasn't about the dancing. Mm -hmm. She uses several different like metaphors and we'll get to another one in the bird that I'm really excited about to represent relationships. Relationships are very infrequently the word relationship in any of her songs. They are always done through metaphors, even in Maroon, instead of saying we stopped talking, it's the rust that grew between telephones. Yeah. She, <laughs> it, she builds her entire like lyricism off of these drawn out beautiful metaphors and they are consistent through all of her songs and I think that that's beautiful but I could talk about that forever another point that I feel like really showcases how this song is up for interpretation is just the line by itself champagne problems champagne problems is a phrase that is used to describe a problem that in comparison to large-scale problems such as poverty hunger natural disaster war etc it doesn't really seem like that big of a deal. And champagne is generally seen as a luxury item. So the idea behind the phrase champagne problems is that these problems are for privileged people only. It's a trivial problem. I saw this really excellent, like, layman point of what a champagne problem could be on TikTok. Uh, Mooneybug, who I love, said, like, my champagne problem is that my credit score is just so good that I always get these super annoying pieces of mail trying to get me to sign up for credit cards. So... It's like a problem that comes from non-problems. Yeah. The thought is, why is champagne problems so prevalent in this song? The, the song is called Champagne Problems. Is that how you interpret it? Is that the way that you see it? I mean, when I was going through my analysis, I was doing it, you know, in chronological order of the lyrics. And I researched a bunch of other people's opinions and everything on that. And this is the one that fits best in my overarching analysis for at least right now in the song, right now in the song. That's what I think it means. Gotcha. Cause there is a lyric, a shift in lyrics later with the phrase champagne problems that changed the way I saw the entire song. But I agree with you here that it makes it look like this is a trivial, small thing. Yeah. The chorus continues with your mom's ring in your pocket, my picture in your wallet, your heart was glass. I dropped it. Champagne problems. So the line, your mom's ring in your pocket, it's implied that this is his mom's engagement ring that he's planning on proposing with. It's being passed generation to generation, which somehow makes this breakup feel heavier and even more heartbreaking. I think I would feel worse turning down a proposal 
when a guy brought his grandma's engagement ring, his mom's engagement ring, a family heirloom to the proposal instead of just buying me a brand new ring. That you somehow feels ickier to me. What's interesting, and I don't know if I've actually told you this story before. There was a guy that I was like seeing a few years ago. It was like a summer fling. And I knew that I needed to end it when he showed me his mom's engagement mm-hmm. ring and said, maybe this will be yours one day. And that's what did it for me. So oh when I hear this, I know, I know he was so sweet too. He was just, I was like, oh too much, shit, too, fast. <laughs> too much, too much. Um, we'd only been dating for a few weeks at this point, uh, really. But I, I relate, I guess, to the her in this story, as you said, we're painting that story onto ourselves of being like oh shit it's a lot of responsibility when the engagement ring is a family heirloom yeah you feel like you're stuck in that forever and you have to pass down this family tradition that's been forced upon you instead of just a brand new ring that like even if you guys got divorced that ring was always yours it wasn't anybody's you don't have to like return the ring to the mom it's just a lot of pressure lots of implications there i also saw somebody say that this line is almost a double entendre because it sounds like it's saying your mom's ringing your pocket like his cell phone is ringing because his mom is invested in the relationship and wants to know how the proposal went i don't think that's what it is but i think that's kind of clever (laughs) (laughs) moving on to the next line her picture in his wallet he loves her so much that he just keeps a photo on him of all times and it's kind of implied with the photo in his wallet that he like shows this picture of her to anybody and talks about her and just very much outwardly loves her and everyone around him knows it. And she likes these themes about carrying somebody with you in a photo because in Sad, Beautiful, Tragic from Red, I stood right by the tracks, your face in a locket. Right by the tracks, your face in a locket. And then dancing with our hands tied from reputation could have spent forever with your hands in my pockets, picture of your face in an invisible locket. So I think romantic to her. Yeah. I think Taylor really likes the idea of somebody wanting to show her off, but only if it's somebody she actually really likes. In this case, it's like almost giving her the ick that he has a picture of her in his wallet, it feels like. Interesting. I don't interpret it like that. Really? Yeah. I mean, I'll break it down more later as it builds up. But what I see is just a picture of a guy who is obsessively in love with this girl. Yes. But when I think back to that guy that I dated, it literally gave me the ick to have him show me that ring. And so to think of how in love he was with me when I did not reciprocate it to that level, it wasn't romantic to me it wasn't heartwarming to me it was like ooh, ooh. like you don't yeah. know how much you don't want it until it's presented to you in every way that the storybook sh- say it should be presented and then you're like I don't want this at all but in fairness to your situation it was weeks in these it- are long-term college sweethearts that have been dating for years that's true it is it is completely different but mm-hmm. I empathize with the uh, fictional yeah. her here yeah (laughs) definitely painting a picture here regardless of interpretation Mm -hmm. the next line I think is a really beautiful depiction as well you know his heart was glass and he trusted her with it and gave it to her and it's implied that after she drops his glass heart it shatters because that's the nature of glass when you drop it on the floor it likely will shatter you're lucky if it doesn't so there's a song that I love called heart of glass by blondie Yes. 
Mm -hmm. most people have probably heard it, but it's this very happy version of like talking about having a glass heart and being sensitive. And then this is like (laughs) a completely different take on a glass heart. Like I'm aware that you had this glass heart. I'm going to drop it anyway. While Blondie, when she's singing that song is, I soon found out that I had a heart of glass and Taylor in this song or the her in this song is saying, I know you have one. Don't give a shit. Drop it. Like I care, (laughs) but I don't care enough to not shatter it. And this image draws a really cool parallel back to the first verse where he's heartbroken and doesn't know how to put the pieces back together. He's tried being around bustling crowds. He's tried being alone in silent sleepers and it's not working because ultimately when a glass shatters, there's no true way of fixing it and making it the way it was before. There's another song on Evermore that talks about glass shattering and it's right where you left me. The line is, you told me that you met someone, glass shattered on the white cloth, everybody moved on. Told me that you met someone, glass shattered on the white cloth, everybody moved on. And we'll analyze that song at some point, but that line in and of itself is probably supposed to be literal and a metaphor in the context of that song. But her glass heart in that story shatters. Yeah. And in How You Get the Girl from 1989, the line, broke your heart, I'll put it back together. together. It's glass. You can't put it back together. Mm -mm. And How You Get the Girl, like, we'll do, we will literally analyze all these songs (laughs) at some point. But like, that line feels so out of place in that song to me and always kind of has. But like, you can't put a broken heart back together. It is glass. Repetition of champagne problems makes me feel like she's saying that his heart being broken and shattered is a champagne problem because he's not dead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like, and they weren't engaged yet. That's what she was trying to say. He'll be okay. He'll be fine. Justifying it to herself. Mm -hmm. It's not that deep. He'll be okay. Time will heal all wounds or whatever. Mm -hmm. So we move into the second verse. You told your family for a reason you couldn't keep it in. Your sister splashed out on the bottle. Now no one's celebrating. Although she sings it as celebrating so that it rhymes, just so we're clear. (laughs) (laughs) So this, I think, continues to paint that picture of how much he outwardly loves this girl. He was so excited to propose to her and outwardly expressed this to everyone around him. So much so that his sister felt the need to splurge on a fancy bottle of champagne for the occasion. This and the fact that he's planning to propose with his mother's engagement ring shows to me just how much both he and his family are ready to fully accept her into their family, which is overwhelming when you were kind of on the fence anyway. And they're all let down in the end because now no one's celebrating. Yeah, she's like almost telling more from his perspective in this verse, which I think is really interesting. She's almost giving the listener the ability to empathize briefly with what he's going through and telling his family. I also saw, so splashed out is a phrase that means to spend a bunch of money on, but I saw, again, this is deep corners of the internet. I am not from England, but I saw that there are certain circles, particularly in England and British listeners, I know we have you, please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Reddit could be lying. Splashed out (laughs) is a term for getting just like piss drunk too. And so that could be a double entendre. Olivia's making a face. (laughs) So that was my first thought when I like started paying attention to the lyrics of Champagne Problems like whenever more came out I thought his sister got pissed drunk off a <laughs> bottle of champagne because no one else was gonna drink it because there was no celebration to be had so I interpret it as his sister 
splash out on the bottle, meaning drink the whole thing. See, not having ever used that phrase, that's what I thought when I first heard it. And then I looked up splashed out when we were uh, doing our research and yeah. I was like, oh, it means spend a lot of money. Right. But somebody on a Reddit forum was like, well, it also can mean getting pissed drunk. And I'm like, I mean, Joe Alwyn's British. Maybe she knows that. Maybe she doesn't know that. Maybe I'm being lied to by the internet, which happens every day. So I don't know, but it would be cool if that's what that double entendre there means, because wouldn't you like, yeah. wouldn't you and get I shit think too, that interpretation also like supports the fact that his family was invested in this too. It wasn't just him. It wasn't just him. He got his mom's ring. She spent, or his sister spent all this money on the bottle. And then he mm -hmm. has to go share this awful news that they're not going to be together anymore. And that's really sad. Exactly. Sometimes proposals happen where someone says no and they keep dating. That is not what I'm getting here. No, definitely she, not. She it's didn't say over. no because she wasn't ready. She said no because she didn't want it at all. Something else I, I wanted to point out after the first verse, but I just thought about now. Yeah. This is one of the few Taylor Swift songs where the first verse doesn't have multiple stanzas before the chorus. She does four mm -hmm. lines, chorus, four lines, chorus. And it almost seems like she's rushing through this song to get to this beautiful, much longer bridge. The bridge itself. Yeah, is the bridge is so long. So long <laughs> compared to the verses. And yeah. when we get to the bridge, we'll expand on this more, but it almost feels like she's just telling the story in verse one and verse two. And then the bridge, she's explaining her side of it though. So so she doesn't want you to know too many yeah, details. I mean, that was like what Taylor was talking about in that quote I shared earlier. I'll just repeat this line just for refreshers. She said, Champagne Problems was one of her favorite bridges to ever write. And she really loves a bridge where you tell the full story and everything shifts gears. Yep. She is just speeding through the over arc of the story in verse one and verse two to get to the explanation bridge, which we'll get mm -hmm. to. But we got another chorus. <laughs> Dom Perignon, you brought it. No crowd of friends applauded. Your hometown skeptics called it champagne problems. Man, so it turns out the bottle of champagne his sister splashed out on was a bottle of Dom Perignon. It's a very expensive vintage champagne. Yeah, Average price per bottle ranges $150 to $400, depending on how long it's aged. Not cheap. <laughs> this just continues to fully support that everyone that knew this couple believed the proposal would have a happy ending. Why would someone spend this much money on a bottle of champagne to celebrate without being confident about the outcome? Everyone expected a happy proposal. I mean, I know this is like a fake story, but it makes me feel so bad for the hypothetical him in this story. I know. And even we're shifting from like family to friends friends even were invested him turning down the proposal was a surprise to absolutely everyone involved an interesting note that i have here is that the last great american dynasty from folklore she mentions rebecca rebecca harkness the protagonist i guess in the story filled the pool with champagne and swam with the big names and dom perignon was the brand that she used to clean out her pool filled the pool with champagne and swam with the big names so, which is so like, which is awesome. I mean, I she's an icon. Yeah. When you think about how expensive those bottles are, but obviously the no out of friends applauded, duh. And then hometown skeptics called it champagne problems. That line has always been one of my favorites in the song, and I haven't given it a whole lot of thought until we were deep diving it. Yeah. It almost to me sounds like people being like, "It's not that big of a deal." That she said no. So I couldn't figure this one out. I spent a lot of time on this one. And that interpretation was not one that I came up with. I have two others. Okay. And I can't, I'm, I'm indecisive on which one I'm buying. 
So we have your interpretation of people being like, it's not a big deal, calm down. One of my interpretations was, I guess here, like punctuation matters. And clearly like, you know, she can do punctuation in her lyrics. So I think we'd be able to see it if it were done that way. But sometimes, I don't know. So first breakdown, your hometown skeptics called it, period. People looking in on the relationship from the outside knew that it would end. The people that weren't hearing him boast about how much he loves her. In that sense, it doesn't make a ton of sense for me because I believe other people thought the proposal would have a happy ending. That's the narrative I'm buying. So that's just an interesting way I've seen people interpret it is people on the outside called it. They knew that it wouldn't work out. Mm -hmm. But another interpretation I have is your hometown skeptics called it champagne problems capitalized. Like mm -hmm. that's what they called the situation and they have a name for this breakup. It makes me feel like the breakup was well known. Everyone knew about the breakup because everyone knew how much he was invested in her and how much he wanted her to be with him forever. That makes it so much more painful. You're walking away humiliated. And like, she's deliberately painting this idea of this upper class family, I feel throughout this story. So yeah. it goes back to my interpretation of they're going to be fine. They're, he's rich. He's yeah. handsome. It's fine. People are dying. <laughs> Kim, Kim, there's people that are dying. <laughs> so the next part of the chorus says, you had a speech, you're speechless. Love slipped beyond your reaches. And I couldn't give a reason. Champagne problems. So the, he had a speech is a, just a further description of the proposal he had planned. It was going to be this like big grand gesture. And now that she's said no, he's literally speechless because he wasn't prepared for her to say no. There was no possible scenario in his brain where she would say no and I, I really really love that line just on its own you had a speech you're speechless he was so prepared and it didn't go as planned it's a good play on words she says love slipped beyond his reaches not I slipped beyond your reaches and it makes me wonder if he just wanted love instead of her specifically as a person. And maybe that's why he was so surprised when she turned him down because he actually wasn't paying attention to her and her wants and needs, but just romanticizing the idea of a life with her. That is a really good interpretation. She could have said, I slipped beyond her reaches. She dropped his hand while dancing and backed away from him. So like she slipped beyond his reaches. Well, she's her next line is, and I couldn't give a reason, which ties to something that I feel like we've all felt before, which is not knowing why a relationship needs to end, but knowing in your heart it needs to end. And mm -hmm. if we're going back to the love slipped beyond your reaches, maybe that I couldn't give a reason is the reason being, how do you say to somebody, I don't think you're in love with me. I think you're in love with the idea of me. That sounds, I don't know, that sounds wrong. <laughs> and I couldn't give a reason to makes me wonder if maybe she did feel like it was a good relationship, like it hit every check mark she thought she had. She doesn't see a glaring issue with the relationship, but all she knows is him getting down on one knee was not what she wanted to experience. This kind of makes me feel like listening all these good things about him, boasting about how much he loves her and telling people that he wants to marry her. These are things that she wanted, mm -hmm. but now that it's happening, she can't give a good reason as to why she's saying no. She can't console him in any way because all she knows is she wants to say no. So I feel like she thought it was a good relationship too until we got to this point. It also contrasts directly him because he is really deliberate. He booked the night train for a reason. He told his family for a reason. Mm -hmm. He is deliberate and she just doesn't know. She can't give a reason. 
She can't give a reason. Before we go into this banger of a bridge, probably one of the best <laughs> on Evermore. We're going to do yeah. a quick break to talk about Anchor. We'll see you back here in a second. Okay, so I am so jazzed to talk about the bridge. It was the first thing that I did an analysis on. And like I said earlier in the episode, this is like the meat of the song. This is the climax and I'm so excited. So I'm just going to start reading off lyrics. Your Midas touch on the Chevy door, November flush and your flannel cure. This dorm was once a madhouse. I made a joke. Well, it's made for me. Uh, there's so much to unpack in just these four lines. So, because these four lines, I feel like don't even go together completely. These are just different like flashes of this relationship. As she's singing, it sounds like she's getting increasingly like frustrated and trying to explain herself. She's getting faster and almost louder and more frantic. And it really sells the story. Yeah. Your Midas touch on the Chevy door. So in Greek mythology, For some context here, King Midas had the ability to turn whatever he touched into gold. So the idea of a Midas touch is that everything that person touches is made better somehow, whether that's like golden metaphorically or like literally, it's just made better. My question is, was his Midas touch on the Chevy door a metaphor for the idea that everything he touches is made better? Or is it that everything he touches seems to be made better? So an important note with the story of King Midas is that it's viewed as a gift because everything he touches turns to gold. But then he touches his daughter, who turns to gold, and food, which turns to gold, which is not edible for the grand most part. So it appears like this beautiful gift, and it truly is a gift and a curse. And so Taylor Swift's loves to use cars as metaphors for relationships as well. So you see it in Getaway Car, all the way back to Tim McGraw with just a boy in a Chevy truck. Cars Mm. also represent a relationship all too well. It represents a relationship. Your Midas touch on the Chevy door. He's touching that relationship. And to everybody else, if that car turns to gold, it's better, it's brighter. But is it a functioning car anymore? No, because it's gold. It can't run. (laughs) I think that that's really interesting. She also loves uh, gold as like a motif for Mm -hmm. Joe Alwyn, the love of golden daylight. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. You made your mark on me, a golden tattoo and dress. Made your mark on me, a golden tattoo. So I know she wrote it with Joe, so it's not about Joe. But when analyzing this, I was like, what is she trying to tell us about how she feels the idea of love being golden and if the car is a metaphor for the relationship the relationship is golden that's the ideal but it doesn't functionally work there's something in the relationship that is causing them to not be able to work also if she's painting the idea of this upper class family which she does throughout the entire song and really does here with a literal turning stuff to gold chevy door it's kind of making herself seem almost like a, um, I don't know, Chevys are pretty nice trucks if you get a good one, but she's being drawn up to their upper-class status. Yeah, because I mean, Chevys are like nice cars, but they're not luxury cars. Yes, they're that's what I was looking They're a very average car for the average Joe to be driving around. Mm-hmm. They're nice though, but they're not luxury nice. That's what I was looking for, luxury vehicles. So mm-hmm. the next line, November flush and your flannel cure. 
I love this one. So November flush, I think, creates a setting of winter and feeling cold. And I think that this line is a snippet of their relationship. Um, they're outside when it's cold and she's flushed because she's feeling cold. And he offers his flannel because his flannel is the cure for her being cold. And this idea of someone offering their jacket to their partner when it's cold out is usually seen as a romantic gesture. And I think it's interesting that there isn't anything blatantly wrong or bad that he did that's being portrayed, even in her like intense rambling of what her perspective was. I think it goes along really well with her saying that she couldn't give a reason why she was saying no. He did all these things right but something was off. There's also an old folk tradition of wearing red flannel because it's supposed to be a remedy for back pain. And <laughs> that's like just a little thing, but she says your flannel cure. And I wonder if she was aware of, and it's right. freaking folklore. <laughs> Interesting. Because cure, you would think like disease. Yeah. And she's wearing a flannel on the cover of Evermore. And she also said in a YouTube live stream on the night of Evermore's release that she wanted Evermore to represent fall and winter and folklore to represent spring and summer. So November flush, flannel cure. Those are like pretty autumnal references. So the next two lines, I think, do go together in the same thought. And I think this one is completely up for interpretation. So the punctuation of these lines is, quote, this dorm was once a madhouse, unquote. This is what someone in this story has said. And I interpret it as something that he said. And my interpretation of how this fits into context, Taylor has said that this song is about college sweethearts. And I imagine they were visiting their old college campus together and that's where he was planning to propose. And they were kind of walking down memory lane and they're walking past their old dorm and him saying that, oh, this dorm was once a madhouse. I interpret as him reminiscing on the crazy college days when they used to live there. I agree. And when she plays off of it with saying, I made a joke, well, it's made for me. Quote, like, quote, well, it's made for me. Yeah. It's her saying in like the self-disparaging joke type way of, ha ha, well, it's a madhouse because I was in there. And I like that this like loosely kind of ties to Mad Woman from Folklore. There's nothing like a mad woman. What a shame she went by. I think that the her making a joke, well, it's made for me and the madhouse is made for me because I'm mad. I think it's shining some light on her own mental health struggles. She thinks she belongs in a madhouse because of her own struggles. And she's making light of it by making a self-deprecating joke. And I think it's interesting that she has this tendency to make light of these things that I don't think she should be making light of. She shouldn't be making light of her mental health struggles. She shouldn't be making light of breaking somebody's heart. It's just really an interesting tendency that the narrator is having. The next line is, how evergreen our group of friends don't think we'll say that word again. And I really love this line. And it makes me really sad because <laughs> like we have a group of friends. Me and Olivia have a group of friends. And a lot of the people in this group of friends are actually in relationships and yeah. with each other. And so it's it kind of just happened that way. That's such a scary thought of when you break up with somebody, especially if you're that deep in with them and integrated into their group of friends, it's going to fall apart if you do. Yeah. I mean, like the idea of evergreen referencing the friend group, 
evergreen comes from evergreen trees and they're called evergreen because they don't lose their leaves in the winter they are forever green and it's often the word evergreen is used as a symbol for something that lasts forever and her saying how evergreen our group of friends is her being ironic because yeah they are in a relationship and all their friends were rooting for them. They have a bunch of mutual friends. And when they break up, what's going to happen to those mutual friends? What side are those mutual friends going to take? And therefore, there is not going to be a solid group anymore. It's going to be two different groups. And if it's like a college group of friends, college group of friends go through a lot of shit together and experience a lot of growing up together. So you have to imagine that they're so ingrained with one another, the fear of not wanting to end the relationship because of what it would do to your other relationship socially is horrifying. Yeah. I also love that there are a lot of theories about which word she's referring to when she sings, don't think we'll ever say that word again. It could be evergreen, our group or friends. I think it's probably our because it's not going to be our anymore. Yeah. They're not going to have any our, maybe that's it's our past, but like, that's my <laughs> past. That's your past. Exactly. But it could be any of them. It could mean it's not evergreen anymore. It's not a group anymore. And she might not be friends with them anymore. It honestly, it could be a multiple meaning, which is right up Taylor's alley. Yeah. I mean, she could have said, don't think we'll say R again, but she didn't said that word for a reason. The next line is, and soon they'll have the nerve to deck the halls that we once walked through. So this one, I think further supports that she felt positively about this relationship up until the proposal. Her saying, soon they'll have the nerve to deck the halls. I think this line represents the idea of everyone else moving on with life as if this relationship never happened. And her saying, they have the nerve, means that she's bothered by everyone else just moving on as if it never happened. Because she doesn't know how to move on as if it never happened. Despite her turning down the proposal and wanting it to be over, she doesn't know how to go forward without him. You and I have talked about this before on the pod. But when somebody breaks up with somebody else, there is a lot of pressure on them to be, I don't know, like, how could they be sad? How could they be depressed for breaking up with somebody? It is evident here that this sucks for her too. Yeah. Like, I would rather get broken up with than break up with somebody. It's awful. Breaking up with somebody really sucks, especially if you like them. And if they were in a group of friends and they've been together since college, mm-hmm. she likes him. Really worst, likes She him. loves him. Mm-hmm. Love is not enough for a relationship to continue. You can love someone with everything you feel like you can love someone with in that moment. And it's still wrong. And you still know what's wrong. Exactly. And she's yeah. really sad. And it's such a joyful season for everyone else decking the halls. Mm-hmm. And she's sad and pissed. That also kind of echoes Tis the Damn Season from later in the album. You could call me babe for the weekend. Tis the damn season right this time. I'm staying. The next line is one for the money, two for the show. That is a popular nursery rhyme. And the full phrase is one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready and four to go. When she goes on to the next line after that with, I was never ready, so I watch you go. She's completely playing off the three to get ready and four to go. I love that part, Um, especially since this rhyme originated in the 1800s when children would sing it before they're like about to do like a race. So like they're at the starting line and, you know, one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready and four to go. And then the race starts. 
Mm-hmm. And the idea is, of course, in a race, you're racing towards the finish line. What's the finish line in a romantic relationship, typically? Marriage. Marriage. So, like, she's watching him go without her because she cannot go with him, which is just really interesting. I saw somebody else tie that one for the money, two for the show, was on an editorial of her and Carly Kloss, which, again, we haven't discussed her relationship with Carly Kloss, her friendship, mm-hmm. her whatever. But I think that's interesting that that phrase, which isn't particularly common, was used in a Carly Kloss editorial and also now here. And I will point out something else interesting about Carly Kloss that I didn't bring up because we weren't talking about Carly Kloss. And I don't think it has any true meaning. Probably not. But Carly and Taylor did a Vogue photo shoot together and they literally took pictures together in a gold Chevy. Interesting. Well, it's important that we present these things because that's, that is what we do. We are here to present everything and people can draw their own conclusions. Exactly. The next line is sometimes you just don't know the answer until someone's on their knees and asks you. I love this. Um, I'm going to quote one of your favorite swift talkers out there, Mooney Buck. She did a deep dive on these two lines. And if anyone's interested, definitely go check her out. She does a lot of this deep dive analysis of lines of Taylor's songs. And it's interesting. And I, I've, I've noticed it before, but I never really broke it down. She says, someone's on their knees. When someone proposes, it's traditional to get down on one knee. Like I got down on one knee and proposed. And this person's on both of their knees. So I interpret it as this person is now begging. She said no, and now he's begging. Moonybug made a really cool point about how it kind of feels like the narrator is trying to like shift the blame off of herself of, you know, you. I'm sure you can relate that like sometimes you just don't know the answer until this thing is presented to you. Like, I didn't know, like, I didn't plan this either. Like, I, I don't... I don't know what to say. That's her shifting blame off of herself mm-hmm. in the moment. She doesn't want to be the bad guy in this narrative. So she's trying everything she can to not be the bad guy. The narrator herself is pushing off the present and impending feeling that the relationship is wrong. There's no reason to end it. It's comfortable and it's good. But when you don't know the answer to a question or like you can't pick something, you flip a coin because when the coin is in the air, you know which side you want it to land on. And that is exactly what happens here is she doesn't know until he is literally on his knee proposing and metaphorically on his knees, begging her to say yes. And I'm sure when she said no to like, even beyond metaphorically, he was literally begging her to stay at least. It's just what my brain, the movie that plays. The next line, there's a quote here. She would have made such a lovely bride. What a shame she's fucked in the head. They said. So clearly this is everyone that was rooting for their relationship. I think on his side, these are people consoling him. What a shame she's fucked in the head. Who says no to you? Who says no to that great relationship? Like you guys had everything. She must be fucked in the head. Again, we're going to throw it back to the last great American dynasty here real quick. She is using the gossip of other people to convey the general opinion about what's going on here. What a shame she's fucked in the head. And she's already said in this song that she thinks of herself as mentally not well saying that she belongs in a madhouse and maybe she does feel that way to a certain extent of why isn't this working am I fucked in the head am I messed up this must be what everybody else is saying because this is how I feel about myself yeah there's something wrong with me for not wanting that relationship I really love this line for a lot of reasons 
in a lot of ways, it ties to the fact that there's this belief that women should desire marriage above all else. And mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think that that's true. I think marriage can be awesome, but I don't think that it's like the pinnacle for yeah. everybody. Like she should have wanted to be such a lovely bride. Yeah. She should have wanted this as bad as you do. You like her, his friend speaking to him, you dodged a bullet is how that line reads. Like his friends are saying to him, you dodged a bullet. So I think that's a really interesting parallel to Lavender Hayes. All they keep asking me is if I'm going to be your bride. The only kind of girl they see is a one night or a wife. The only kind of girl they see is a one night or a wife. That's Taylor's like real relationship. Everyone, everyone's like, when is Taylor Swift and Joe Allen going to get married? Like, when are they going to get married? It's interesting that even in her fictional stories, she's kind of drawing parallels to her real life of this obsession with people assuming that the finish line for relationships is marriage, that everyone, every woman should want to be a bride. So she definitely drew probably some real life feelings and themes to help build this narrative in this bridge and defend her fictional character, her fictional self. The next line, which wraps up the bridge, but you'll find the real thing instead. She'll patch up your tapestry that I shred. This again, I feel like is justifying what she's doing. She's like, it's going to be okay. You're going to be fine. It's just a champagne problem. It's not that big of a deal. You're going to find someone who loves you. Also very much saying this is a good thing that this is happening because I'm not the one for you. And it's interesting too, that the narrator says it's the tapestry that she shred because shred, I feel like implies, at least for me in my brain, it implies purposeful and angrily or just negatively it's a very negative word in my brain like you shred it it feels purposeful we go into one final chorus and hold your hand while dancing never leave you standing crestfallen on the landing with champagne problems this is a direct continuation from the bridge so this person that he's going to end up finding is going to hold his hand while dancing and not drop it She's never going to leave him standing and feeling crestfallen. And she's never going to give him champagne problems, Mm -hmm. which is everything that the narrator has done to him. And again, I feel like this futuristic ideal that she's painting is for her. Like she's comforting herself that, oh, someone else is going to fix him and make him better. And they're going to fix what I've done. Especially since she still cares about him in this theoretical relationship she wants him to be okay yeah she goes on again directly paralleling her other choruses and a continuation of this chorus with your mom's ring in your pocket her picture in your wallet you won't remember all my champagne problems this is when i think the idea of champagne problems kind of switches up a little bit and now i feel like it's referencing her own mental health struggles And how she feels like maybe her mental health struggles are to blame for this relationship ending. So there's this really like good excerpt that I found on um, a lyrics analysis website. And I'm just going to read it off word for word because I couldn't possibly try to paint it better myself. 
Champagne problems can also refer to the fact that a lot of people see depression and other mental illnesses as rich people problems that are trivial and insignificant. The partner in this song may have belittled the singer's problems by referring to them as small and not a good enough reason to reject a proposal. At the end of the song, Swift sings, you won't remember all of my champagne problems, which clearly demonstrate that these problems were not the problems of her partner, but her own. I like that. So it's directly tying maybe even with Taylor's own mental health struggles, which some people are like, that doesn't matter. Those are less severe than other people's problems because you're not hungry. You're not homeless. And you know, those are major. Everyone problems. has it worse than you. There's always going to be someone that has it worse than you. I agree with you that this is kind of when the tone changes about what champagne problems are. And they're all about her and her own issues and saying, you're not even going to remember me one day or these problems. Yeah. I feel like this entire song goes on and on and on and on. And she, the entire time, is deflecting blame. She's not at fault. Like, she didn't know that this was going to happen. She didn't plan for this. His broken heart is a champagne problem. And I feel like this entire song is her experience of reflecting what happened. And by the end is when she started to actually self-reflect and be like, maybe I'm the problem. And she just repeats that line as like the outro to the song. She says again, you won't remember all my champagne problems. Really hammering it in. What a Mm. beautiful piece of work. She wrote that with her boyfriend of six years because they just like to be miserable. Yeah. (laughs) Well, they were four years at the time. So, you know, (laughs) they were... They were just starting to explore some being miserable. But then they wrote Sweet Nothing later, so it's fine. Champagne Problems was met with extreme critical acclaim. People love this song. I love this song. Everyone loves this song. And it's a lot of people's favorites when I have where I see rankings. Yeah, it's up there because the storytelling is just so outstanding. Mm -hmm. It is the second best performing track by numbers from Evermore after Willow. Of course, course, because there's a million remixes. There's a million freaking Willow remixes. And it was like the single. I was listening to some remixes for Willow the other day. And we did sleep on some of them just because they were remixes and they made us mad. (laughs) Some of them were really good. Cool. (laughs) Yeah. Champagne Problems charted at number 12, right when the album released on the Billboard Global 200. And it opened at 21 on the Billboard Hot 100 and number three on the Hot Rock and Alternative Song chart. It spent 20 weeks on that chart and became Taylor's 17th top 10 entry. And it debuted at number seven on the Rolling Stone Top 100. Basically, this song, despite not being a single, was well-loved, well-received, and just took off on charts. Yeah, I feel like this song is one of my favorites to show off for people who don't know Taylor Swift's discography very well. For one, I think it shows off her vocals really well. She hits some really beautiful low notes and it really represents her ability to create really beautiful lyrics. And I think that's something that is one of the best things about Taylor Swift's music and where she shines the best is her actual lyrics. And I just feel like this song is A++ in terms of that. It is outstanding and it ties back to some of her other songs in ways that I think are really creative if you're listening closely. An NME critic juxtaposed Champagne Problems to Love Story. So 
saying that, that, again, those are versions of opposites, accepting a marriage proposal, rejecting a marriage proposal. And I think that that's really cool how far her career has come. Mm -hmm. If you're going to use those like as an apples to apples situation in writing, but apples to oranges in story. Yeah, that's an interesting comparison too, because love story is so fantastical. It Mm -hmm. feels fictional all the way through. A bunch of critics, including Patrick Ryan from USA Today, said that Champagne Problems is a highlight on Evermore. And Bobby Oliver from Spin singled out the song as an unskippable highlight on Evermore, saying it's an addictive depiction of a failed marriage proposal, which is exactly what it is. And other critics said that they loved the exact detail that is painted throughout this song. Oh, and I love this one too. Clash critics said that this was one of Taylor's 15 best songs of all time. The listicle claims that the bridge from Champagne Problems is, quote, without a doubt, some of Taylor's best work as it flows between metaphor and brutal honesty. Brutal honesty sure sounds like casually cruel in the name of being honest. Yeah. And just as like a fun little note. A French luxury hotel, the Royal Champagne Hotel and Spa, offered a new package after the album came out, calling it the Champagne Solution, Stop which it. <laughs> includes a bottle of Dom Perignon. I'm shaking my head for those who obviously <laughs> can't see. <laughs> so everyone but me. <laughs> champagne Solution. <laughs> but overall, really, the critical claim came from the vivid and poignant portrayal of heartbreak and mental health struggles that lead to the end of relationships so frequently. I love this song. It yeah. makes me cry. Oh. But I think this was a really great song to analyze as we enter Evermore season. For some reason, Champagne Problems, I don't consider to be my favorite on Evermore. Um, Evermore has one of my favorites of all time from Taylor, and it's not Champagne Problems, unfortunately. However, I do fully understand and appreciate the hype around the song and why it is so many people's favorite Taylor Swift song of all time or favorite song off of Evermore, because it's so beautiful. It really is just outstanding lyricism, storytelling, and Mm -hmm. even like the guitar riff and the piano, it's all just, it flows together so beautifully. It is gorgeous. And this is really where Taylor's lyricism, the thing she's most proud of, gets to shine and gets that spotlight where it's not just about the fun music. It's not just about the catchy hook. It's about the story being told. Exactly. What are we talking about next week though? Next week, we are going to get away from, you know, the really in-depth heart-wrenching stories and we're gonna do something a little more fun a little more (laughs) (laughs) lighthearted. we are gonna do a music video analysis I mean I was gonna say this is our first on the pod but we've done a short film analysis so it's a little different right Mm -hmm. right no it's basically the same thing (laughs) anyway the music video that we are going to be analyzing is Bejeweled best believe I'm still bejeweled when I walk in the room I can still make the whole because there's so much good stuff, good Easter eggs packed in there that I know we hit a lot during our 1989 TV versus Speak Now TV um, debate episode, which if you haven't heard, you've got to go listen to it. It's a lot of fun. But there's a lot of stuff that doesn't pertain to Taylor's future albums that are in there. So I think it's going to be really fun to unpack. That will be fun. What did you learn this week? What did you tailor in this week? I tailored how expensive Dom Perignon is. You didn't know that? 
No, I mean, I always knew it was an expensive champagne. $400? Yeah, it's no joke. I've only had it a couple of times in my life. In both scenarios, I was like, thank God I'm not paying for this. It's good, but it's not $400 good. That's a Taylor Swift ticket. Yeah, a good Taylor Swift ticket. A good Taylor Swift. That's not even a basic Taylor Swift ticket. (laughs) I mean, maybe for the Ares tour, there were some $400 tickets in not the best spots, but, you know, save that for another time. Yeah, (laughs) we'll we'll let that one settle a little bit. We'll let the dust settle and then we'll (laughs) chat that out. I know that people have asked us to comment on the Ares tour ticket mask our disaster we'll get there we just too emotional yeah we just we need to cool down and I think everybody else does too but we'll get there yeah I learned that champagne problems is the second best performing song from evermore I didn't know that it probably wouldn't have even been my guess but I'm not surprised yeah I'm not surprised either well this has been a lot of fun to deep dive and I think I need to go listen to some fun Taylor Swift songs because now it's stuck in my head champagne problems is this is all that's been stuck in my head for the past like two days. <laughs> and a clip of Champagne Problems is going to play at the end of this episode. So it's going to be stuck in your head too here in just you a minute. Also just go listen to it, you know, in full after you finish here and just really soak it all in with your newly gained knowledge. Exactly. And while you're listening to it, go follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Tay Learning Podcast. We're on Twitter, but frankly, we're less active on Twitter, but that's at Tay Learning. And you can always shoot us a DM. They're always open. And you can send us an email, Podcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you guys. So definitely shoot us a DM. We love it. We really do. For this <laughs> week, my name is Danny, And I'm Olivia. See you next time. Bye. Two for the show, I never was ready, so I watch you go. Sometimes you just don't know the answer to someone's on their knees and asks you. She would have made such a lovely bride. What a shame she's fucked in the head, they said. But you'll find the real thing instead. She'll patch up your tapestry that I shred and hold your hand while dancing. Never leave you standing, crestfallen on the guest on the pod yes what do you want to talk about what's your favorite album he's like i just like attention Mm, so you're a 1989 girly huh yeah